0: today's scripture reading is from Matthew 5, verses 1 to 12, and it can be found on page 809 of your Blue Pew Bibles. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn,
1: Please pray with me. Father in heaven, we come before you and we thank you for this afternoon. We thank you for the privilege of being able to gather together uh, as a portion of your people. Father, we recognize that not only are are we a portion, um, but we recognize that even in light of our community, um, we would long for so many others to be with us Father, we praise You that You have put Christ the King Church Newton here where You have geographically. You intend us, Father, to be a light to our community, uh, to be salt in our community, Father. Um, we have seen our community here in Newton in, uh, in chaos this week. Uh, and we pray, Father, that You would be uh, with us, that You would make us salt and light into this place. Father, the fact that you have put Christ the Church, Christ the King Church in Newton uh, is a sure sign of your love for this place. Father, that's what you have said, that you love the world so much that you gave your only begotten Son. Um, Lord Jesus, we, um, we confess that when we draw near to you and we hear your words, we are blown away by who you are. Father, as I've been reminded uh, this week, we praise You uh, that Jesus is Your Word, that Your Word uh, has always been with You, that Your Word has always made You known, that You, Father, have made Your Word uh, incarnate. Lord Jesus, that You became a human being, You are the very Word of God who became flesh. And we praise You that You came so that we might know the Father. And Father, we praise You that You sent Your Son that You might reconcile the world to Yourself. Father, we are amazed that of all the ways that You have chosen to reveal Yourself, You have made Yourself a God of reconciliation. A God who has promised to make all things new. And Father, we are humbled by that. We are stopped in our tracks. Our self-centeredness and our greed that's already been confessed and prayed about is, we really are stopped. Father, we need so much. And so now I ask you, Father, to a woman and to a man in this congregation, in this room today, would you teach us how to pray? Would you teach us how to come before you even in these next few minutes and cry out to you in praise of your character, in confession of sin, in the supplication of all that we need that comes out through these texts and in the thanksgiving for Jesus. Lord, that you would teach us how to pray and that you would give us rest. Jesus, you are the one who said we ought to always pray and never give up, never lose heart. Lord Jesus, you are the one who the writer of Hebrews says has passed through the heavens, that you are now seated at the right hand of the Father, and that you have opened wide to us the throne room of grace, that we might come in your name and access the grace and the mercy to help us in our time of need. And so, Lord Jesus, would you teach us how to pray? And Holy Spirit, you are the one, your word says, who groans on our behalf. We praise you, Holy Spirit, that you pray for us. We praise you that your word says that you know that we don't know how to pray or what to pray for, but that you will teach us. Father, I pray on this first day of our week that you would lead us into your presence that here you would teach us and that here you would feed us. Father, thank you for your faithfulness to your promises. And thank you that we can pray for that in advance of you being faithful to those promises because you have said that you're the God who will never change, that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so we give you thanks. And it is with the great expectation that we've been singing about already that we come before you and ask you to work. We pray all of this in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. All right, we're still in the uh, Sermon on the Mount. We are here in the Beatitudes. And I told you guys last week that you get three weeks of this. Uh, And the image that's come to my mind this week as I've thought about the Sermon on the Mount is that Jesus is really tenderizing all of those who hear Him speak on the Sermon on the Mount. He's tenderizing our hearts with these beatitudes, all right? Remember what beatitudes are. The first part of what I wanna do is talk about a little bit of review so that we're all on the same page, right? The second thing that I wanna do is show you this second set of Beatitudes, and the last thing I wanna do is talk about the result of these Beatitudes of engagement, all right? Those are the three things I'm gonna try to accomplish, but first I want us to think just for a minute about review, and I want us to remember what Beatitudes are. They're listed for us, again, on page 809 of your Pew Bibles. Eleni just read it for us in chapter five of Matthew. This beatitude is titled as Supreme Blessings, right? The way that God is blessing his subjects of his kingdom, right? The beatitudes are intended to be for us motivation for living a specific way, for living as those who are subject in the kingdom of God, subject to and subjects in the kingdom of God. We saw in the first few verses that Jesus has come before us as a prophet and that he is ushering in this new kingdom, this kingdom of heaven. And he is describing for us in the Sermon on the Mount what the lives of his subjects will look like. We talked last week and we said that in the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus recognizes the tension. And he does so in these Beatitudes, right? Blessed are you who are poor in spirit. Blessed are you who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. The ones we already talked about, right? And we said how opposite this is with what we believe is blessed in this world, right? You have no Disney Cruise that encourages you to be poor in spirit, to be mournful, to be meek, and to hunger and thirst, right? The bars are open all night as are the food from as is the food from what I understand but Jesus is recognizing the tension from the very beginning the tension that you and I both know is in our lives in our very hearts and in our relationships the second thing that I want to remind you of is that Jesus is tenderizing the hearts of those who hear the rest of the sermon on the mount through these beatitudes He's tenderizing our own hearts. Now, I want to give you a different image of tenderizing really quickly. It's not the tough pork chop that you you take in the kitchen and you take the metal hammer and you beat it with until the pork chop is flat and easy to eat and everything's broken down. That's not what Jesus is doing in this. Jesus is taking you and he's like pouring olive oil on kale and he's massaging it, right? I know you know this, right? Everybody is eating kale these days. The only way I can eat any kale is if it's in a blender. I'm going to be honest with you. But this tenderizing is the tenderizing of the massaging of kale, the pouring on of oil, and the working of that into that thing that is otherwise unedible. This idea that we would hear the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord is tenderizing us in these Beatitudes. And we asked the question last week, are we teachable? Are we teachable when we come to his word? Do we believe that these blessings, these blessings that are pronounced in these Beatitudes are worth our lives? Because that's really what it comes down to, you guys. These Beatitudes, are they worth the very lives that you all are living. Listen, one of the things that we're told all the time in this world, and that is right, it's correct, we have one life. And you have less of it now than you did two seconds ago. (laughs) Are these beatitudes worth our lives? Because Jesus is saying those who are subject to his kingdom will be like this and will live like this. Finally in review, is the last little bit, there were four Beatitudes that we talked about last week and I'm calling them the Beatitudes of Disposition, right? How our hearts are disposed to the world in which we live. The disposition of those who are subjects in God's kingdom who are living in this world, right? You you see them right before you. They are Beatitudes of Disposition and here they are again, poverty of spirit, right? Essentially saying if you, you wanted one phrase, I see that there's a problem, and I can't fix it. It would be a great way to understand poverty of spirit. Intellectually assenting to a reality, right? Mourning, emotionally engaging with the reality of our poverty in spirit. Meekness, spiritually being before God in the context of our poverty of spirit. Intellectually, emotionally, spiritually. Entering into the tension that Jesus introduces with our whole being. And it's resulting in this fourth beatitude, this fourth disposition of a hunger and a thirst. Well, look, that's lost on us, right? If you're hungry, what do you go do? Open the refrigerator, Bradley. Everybody knows that. If you're thirsty, what do you do? Not a problem. Turn on the tap. We have lost the idea of what it means to hunger and thirst. But when Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness sake because they will be satisfied, what he is saying is he is saying at the very base and basic impulse of our lives, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for all things being rightly related. And it begs a question of us, doesn't it? And the question that I have for us is what is the most important driving factor of your life? Listen, something gets each of us up out of bed every morning. What is that? What is that that drives you? Do you conceive of it in any way related to all things being made right? Because when Jesus says that the dispositions of the subjects of his kingdom all lead to something, he says that they lead to those who are blessed, who are hunger and thirst for righteousness. And he promises again satisfaction. We said last week that when we hear these things poverty of spirit, mourning, meekness, and hunger and thirst for righteousness. If we sense an inadequacy in our own hearts for one of those four things, the best thing to do is to go and look at the trait that comes before it, right? And to go, have I really mourned the reality in which I live, in which I see the world? It's easy enough to do that if we really engage with all of the news that's shoved down into our our feeds and into our lives, isn't it? Because it becomes so overwhelming. But are you willing to enter into mourning as quickly as you and I are willing into shutting that feed off and just saying, "Ah, I just can't deal with it, I'm just going to shut it off? hunger and thirst for righteousness. This apex beatitude of disposition, we could call it, might be the one place where we said last week we understand Jesus when Jesus says that His very food, His very food is to do the will of the Father. Those first four were the four beatitudes of disposition the way in which we are oriented intellectually, emotionally, and spiritually to the world in which we live as subjects of God's kingdom. But the second four, and this is the second thing that I want to do, is to introduce you to the Beatitudes of what I'm calling engagement. The Beatitudes of engagement start there with verse 6, or verse 7 rather, Blessed are the merciful, blessed are the pure in heart blessed are the peacemakers, and blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. I believe that these could be called the Beatitudes of Engagement because these four necessarily require involvement with others. Think about it for just a minute. The Beatitudes of Disposition don't necessarily involve that engagement with other people. We can see our own hearts and recognize our poverty and spirit, right? That poverty and spirit could lead us to mourning. That mourning makes us meek individuals, and then we hunger and thirst for righteousness, right? There's, there's no need for us in that sequence to engage others, but not so with these Beatitudes. Not so with these. They necessarily involve others. They necessarily involve action in the kingdom of the world, right? To be merciful, to be pure in heart, to be peacemakers. The fourth is like a result of that, right? Blessed are those of you who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, right? Well, we hunger and thirst for righteousness. And so these other Beatitudes go, what are the actions that will mark our lives, if we hunger and thirst for righteousness, and then the last is the result of those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. It seems to me that the first four progress from the, the, uh, the dispositions, right? And again, poverty of spirit, mourning, mourning to, mourning to meekness, meekness to hungering and thirsting for righteousness. But it seems to me that these four, the four that we're looking at, merciful, pure in heart, peacemakers, and those who are persecuted, they really progress in the focus of the promises, right? Each of the Beatitudes comes with a promise, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy, right? There's a promise there. And look at those promises in order, for they shall receive mercy, for they shall see God, for they shall be called sons of God, and they will inherit the kingdom, right? The promise that the whole Beatitudes started with is repeated for us again. It seems like the progression in these Beatitudes is with these promises. And so the question that stands before us is, how are subjects of God's kingdom called to engage this world? And Jesus gives us these three tenderizing, massaging ways of telling us what we're supposed to be like, right? Look at these briefly with me. One, those who are blessed who show mercy are the merciful. Two, blessed are those who act in such a way who demonstrate, it's necessary that we understand demonstration, purity of heart here. And the third is blessed are those who are peacemakers, right? That's what we see Jesus doing here the fourth beatitude is what we're going to end with. It's going to be the result of this. But I want you to look at these three attitude, beatitudes with me for just a minute. Right there, verse 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Uh, I gave you some definitions that I found as I was researching and studying this week. right? They're in the preparation quote. The merciful. St. Augustine would say, Those who are merciful are those who come to the aid of others. It's a pretty good definition you like that. John Calvin says this that the merciful are those who not only who are not only prepared to put up with their own troubles I've got enough of those, right? But who also take on other people's troubles. Merciful. Not only putting up with our own troubles, but who are willing to take on other people's troubles. And then another commentator that I've enjoyed this week says this, the gospel merciful are the understanding. Those who understand. Those who put themselves under others to support them. This idea of the merciful is so consistent in the gospel of Matthew. In another place Jesus says, when he is condemned for eating with the, the Pharisees, or excuse me, with the tax collectors and the prostitutes, when He is condemned by the Pharisees, He says, "I have come to be with the sick, not the well. Go and learn what this means. Go and learn what it means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice." It's amazing that he quotes to them an Old Testament passage. Out of the book of Hosea, go and learn what this means. I, God, desire mercy, not sacrifice. Listen, you could read this and say, well, that's how I earn mercy is I show and I am merciful. Well, we argued last week that the promises are more about certainty than they are about the result of doing something and therefore you get something else, right? Right. And all we have to do is look at Jesus' parable of the unmerciful servant to understand this. If the, if the direction is, look, you, you, you first show mercy and then you receive mercy, the story of Jesus' unmerciful par- servant would have gone like this. There was a, par- there was a servant who... Uh, who, who was, had many people that owed him money and those people came to him and he forgave them for what they had done for him or, and they forgave him their money and then that servant went on to the one to whom he owed a lot of money and that one looked and said, hey, you forgave all the people who owed you and therefore I'm gonna forgive you, right? But is that how that parable goes? You and I both know that's not how that parable goes. How does that parable go? That that unmerciful servant finds himself before the one to whom he owes thousands of lifetimes of money, impossible to pay back, right? And he says, please, please show me mercy. And the guy goes, I do. I show you mercy. I forgive you. I forgive you. And then what does the unmerciful servant go and do? Someone comes to him who owes him about a year's worth of money and says, please, please, would you have mercy on me? Would you please give me time to pay you? And he says, no, I won't, right? The idea here of being merciful and those who are merciful will, for they shall receive mercy is the certainty. In fact, it is the proof that we have received mercy, that we are merciful, right? That's what Jesus is talking about. I want to ask you a sharp question with regard to being merciful. Who has sinned against you and owes you? This is not a rhetorical... Well, it's rhetorical in the sense that I don't expect you to answer back. Don't, don't say that. But I do want you to think about this. In your life, who has sinned against you and who owes you? Will you show them Mercy. What does that look like? What does it look like in that situation that you're thinking of? And listen, that's the question that ought to drive us to prayer. God, help me. How do I even make sense of this? It is the Lord's prayer. Forgive us our debts even as we have forgiven our debtors right the second beatitude of engagement is the demonstration of pure of heart blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see god listen i am saying it's demonstrations of pure of heart and you could say really really how do you get there Well, I get there because of the last beatitude. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. If no one ever knew that I was pure in heart, I wouldn't be persecuted for it, right? So it has to be a demonstration of a poverty of heart. That's the only thing that really, or a purity of heart. That's the only thing that makes sense. What does pure of heart mean? Jesus is all the time using phrases out of the Old Testament. And maybe one of the clearest places to find this idea of purity of heart is Psalm 24, And there the psalmist is writing and he says, I have not lifted up my soul to what is false, nor have I sworn deceitfully. In other words, the psalmist is saying, I have a pure heart, a clean and a pure heart. And then the parallel definition of that is saying, I haven't lifted up my soul to what is false. In other words, I have have worshipped you. It's an amazing way of thinking about worship, isn't it? Lifting up our soul before God. My soul is yours. I haven't lifted up my soul to anything that is false. And I have not sworn deceitfully, is what the psalmist says. There is in this purity of heart public action toward God and others that demonstrate a purity of heart. I began to think about that this week, and I wondered of all the people who knew me, Am I known for a full and an unreserved offering of myself to God? Am I known for that? Known in such a way that I could possibly be persecuted for that? Because that's what Jesus is talking about here. I sat and and allowed that tenderizing into my heart. And the only thing I could come up with was Daniel in the Bible, right? Think about who Daniel was. He was known for being pure of heart, wasn't he? He was known for it. What did he get in trouble for doing? He got in trouble for praying and for praying in such a manner of which people saw him praying, right? And when he got caught praying or when he heard that there was a a new law that was going to catch him praying, he didn't start acting deceitfully and hiding somewhere else to pray. He kept going, right? He didn't lift his heart up into anything that was false and he didn't deceitfully speak to others. Amazing. But the last one might get you the way that it's gotten me this week. In fact, if I'm honest with you, the last one is less about tenderizing. And it has felt more like crushing this week. Jesus says of these last beatitudes of engagement that are our actions, because the last one, right, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. It's a result. It's not an action, right? This last one in verse 9 says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. These Beatitudes have gone from the promises of you will receive mercy, to you will see God, to you will be called sons of God. Look at that note. The note sends you to the bottom of the page. The bottom of the page explains to you that the Greek word we ask is translated here sons and daughters, right? It's a very capable way of understanding that, that you will be called sons and daughters. Of God. This one crushes me. To be a peacemaker is to seek peace between human beings. In an uninterested way, is what one commentator said. And meaning this, not that you don't care about the peace that you're seeking, but you have nothing to gain from entering into longing for peace between you got nothing to gain this idea of entering into this blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of god for they shall be called daughters and sons of god is because in so doing peacemakers are like their father this is what the Father does. One of the phrases that I grew up with was, fruit don't fall far from the tree, right? This is a great example of that. If you begin to push into the concept of peacemaking, you see that it is incorporating a communal well-being One commentator said, in every direction and in every relationship, right? That you and I ought to be peacemakers. Oh, man. On Tuesday, I almost went back to a store. And I wonder now if I tell you this, if I'm going to have to go back to the store, because you're probably going to tell me. I almost had to go back to a store where I was just trying to exchange the shirt I got so angry and, and, and did the opposite of, 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 of seeking peace in my own life. And I just wonder for us, do we grasp the call? No, let me say it this way. Do we grasp the requirement of these beatitudes of engagement for subjects of the kingdom of God the requirement that we be merciful the requirement that we be a pure heart the requirement that we be peacemakers not peace lovers It doesn't say that it doesn't say peace wanters <laughs> want peace <laughs> I would love peace right it doesn't say peace fakers I added that one. It doesn't say peace livers. It says peacemakers. That we enter into a mediating role. Martin Luther spoke about this, and he actually said, we enter into a mediating role where we carry the very best of both sides. We think the best of each other in situations of peacemaking, but that we actually desire peace in such a way that we enter into the chaos. And I have last question. Where is God calling you to be a peacemaker? Between whom... Don't dismiss that. Let's sit here for just a minute. Where is God calling you to be a peacemaker? Where do you know in your life there is an absence of peace right now? How is God calling you to enter into that? The result of these I'm not going to say a lot here because it has to do with persecution and Nate is going to end up finishing this three-part series on the Beatitudes with looking at verses 10 and 11 next week. But this result of these Beatitudes of engagement are the very last one, verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are persecuted for seeking all things to be right. The guarantee, again, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This guarantee, because they're being persecuted for working toward all things being rightly related. I want to say a couple of brief things about this, and here they are. They're going to go fast because I want to get to the table. This is the only beatitude that's given that's a result of other people's actions toward us. It's the only one. And it's a result of whether or not we have engaged for righteousness' sake. This one requires, I think, us to consider that prayer and wisdom are so necessary to pursue right relationships and things rightly related because it is so wicked hard to understand this. But we pray for it all the time. We pray for it every time we come to this table when we say, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Where are you and I being persecuted because we are longing for all things to be made right? It's super hard. It's hard for us to understand how our callings in every area of life where we are, you guys, and look, we are in a lot of areas of life as subjects of God's kingdom. We're there because of this call to pursue righteousness, Look, this is so hard that we need each other. We need each other to help work this out. The result of pursuing righteousness, of living this way, is persecution because it is wicked convicting to live for righteousness' sake. It is convicting to everyone who sees anyone else doing this. It is convicting to because to live for righteousness sake versus for my own sake, for my own well-being, for my own benefit, you fill in the blank. When someone is living for righteousness sake, that is a judgment in and of itself. The last thing that I want to say is that when it ends with this idea of persecution, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, we begin to understand that it's not just the entirety of the Sermon on the Mount that helps us understand who Jesus is, but it is these very Beatitudes themselves, Beatitudes of disposition and also Beatitudes of engagement that help us to understand who Jesus is. Jesus, the Word of God who became flesh. The Word of God. God exists. God's Word exists and declares who He is. God's Word became flesh in the person and the work of Jesus Christ so we might know the very heart of the Father and the very work of the Father. This is an amazing tenderizing section of scripture because in this we begin to understand if you read these beatitudes in light of jesus's death and crucifixion on the cross and resurrection and glorification we begin to understand the way that god is going to bring all things into right relationship with him restoring first and foremost our relationship with Him. These beatitudes are a way of us understanding the ministry of Christ. But understand this. It is also the way for us to understand our participation in God's commitment to making all things new. Remember, this is not intended to be the hammer on the pork chop. This is intended to be the massaging of the kale, the massaging of our hearts that you and I would believe who we are supposed to be. And to the end of that massaging, we come to the supper where Jesus continues to convince us When I have called you to give your life, make no mistake, I have already given mine for you. So my call for you is not too great. And it's never in a position of earning. It's always in the engagement of response. Will you come to the table with me? Will we eat and have our fill? Please pray.